Uh, we're going to talk this morning about the surprising kindness of the king. The surprising kindness of the king. I'm reading a book by one of my favorite historians called Hampton Sides. It's called uh, From the Kingdom of Ice, or in, rather, In the Kingdom of Ice. I think I wrote, wrote it wrong. In the Kingdom of Ice. It's about an Arctic, a North Pole expedition gone wrong um, in the late 19th century, 1880s. And it's about the, it features Captain DeLong and the, the ship called the Jeanette. And they don't know much about the polar ice caps, and they think that it's like warm water up at the top ringed by ice. So they, they really don't know much, and they end up um, getting shipwrecked and frozen in the ice, and their ship gets crunched up. And then most of the rest of the book is about their amazing journey with all their gear, sleds, boats, everything over this Arctic chopped up wasteland. They do, as the, as the crow flies, in like two months, they walk basically starving um, over 1,000 miles, but not as the crow flies. They cover over 2,500 miles on foot with dogs and all this gear. It's, it's amazing. At one point in the book, toward the end, it's July 4th, I think 1881, and they have their little American flag sadly waving, and they think they're about to die, and they're in the middle of this wasteland, and no one's coming for them. And it says, Bennett is the guy that paid for the expedition. Bennett has spoken of sending a search party off to the Arctic should the Jeanette run into trouble. But realistically, DeLong, the captain, understood that he and his men were far beyond any rescuer's reach. Bennett couldn't help them, and neither could their country, which would be celebrating its 105th birthday once the sun came up on the far side of the planet. The American flags over the tent seemed to mock DeLong, seemed to symbolize his nation's fecklessness and its own irredeemable solitude. And his own, excuse me, irredeemable solitude. His only hope, he knew, was to try to redouble everyone's resolve. And here's the line I wanted you to hear. They would have to save themselves. It was up to them. They would have to save themselves. The text this morning shows us in no uncertain terms, with crystal clarity, that God's kindness does not depend on you. God's kindness to you does not depend on you. God's kindness to me does not depend on me. It depends on him. It depends 100% on him. And then we're gonna talk at the finish about why this matters. So a little context as we look at this. In verse one, David says, is there still anyone left? And that word's in the Hebrew there. Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul? That still is an important word because it kind of gives us all the context of previously well, everything that's happened in one word, in that um, David has now taken the throne, as we know, having come through this series. It's been a long time coming, over 20 years since he was anointed to when he becomes king. He's been king. Saul was the previous king and tried to kill David many, many times as a rival to his throne, or so he thought. All of Saul's house has been killed off, essentially. There's no one, there's no one left. And so when... Um, Robert Alter says, he's a Hebrew commentator, all have either fled or are dead. Um, and so David comes and he says, is there anyone left that I can bless? Okay, and it turns out that there is this one left. That's, so Jonathan was Saul's son. Saul was the first king. And this guy is Jonathan's son, so he's Saul's grandson. And he has fled across the Jordan River after, after having become handicapped and fled when Saul and Jonathan, his father, were killed on Mount Gilboa by the Philistines. The Philistines are coming. Maybe David's coming. He's going to kill us all anyway. If the Philistines go get us, let's go. 
And so this, this little boy, he was five at the time. He's now in his 20s. And he was five at the time, and his nurse picked him up, having heard about the news of his dad and granddad being killed. And the Philistines are coming, and she picks him up, and in her haste, she drops him. This is in 2 Samuel 4, verse 4. And she breaks both his feet at age five. And so she flees, and he grows up lame. And he grows up an outcast, forgotten, not wanted at all, with someone else um, that his dad tried to kill on the throne. So the first thing I want to talk about, point one, Mephibosheth's abysmal situation. And we'll see here how David's kindness did not at all depend on Mephibosheth, had nothing to do with Mephibosheth. So first of all, he's a threat to David. Um, like I said, he is, he is in the, rival, the previously rival king's line, a rival king who tried to kill David times without number. And it was common policy in the ancient Near East to destroy rivals to the throne. Once you came to power, if there was any, anyone else that was a rival claimant, you got, you got rid of them, especially if they were trying to kill you previously. So Dale, Dale Ralph Davis, an Old Testament commentator, he says, he says, when a new regime or dynasty came to power, the name of the game was purge. You didn't, you didn't go wandering in the ancient Near East to confirm this. So we don't have to look at comparative texts. We can just look at the Bible, okay? We can see... Basha in 1 Kings 15, Zimri also in Kings, Jehu, to find out what happens to the remnants of the previous regime. The new king always needed to solidify his position. It was conventional political policy, he says, solidification by liquidation. Everyone knew it, everyone believed it, and everyone practiced it. Franklin Roosevelt, former president, uh, I think he served four terms, was president during, at the tail end of the Great Depression and then during the Second World War. He made a speech in Pittsburgh in 1932 advocating restraint in government spending. And four years later, he wanted to speak on the exact opposite topic, how as a government we needed to spend our way out of the Great Depression. And he asked counsel, how do I do this? He wanted to give it the speech in the same place in Pittsburgh four years later about the exact saying, advocating the exact opposite position. And the counsel was straightforward. Deny, deny that you made the speech in Pittsburgh in 1932. Y'all, if David was ever tempted to uh, deny that he made a speech, that speech being promising to Jonathan that I will care for your line forever, as long as I'm able. And Jonathan said the same thing to him. Jonathan was Mephibosheth's father. If there was ever a time to say, I don't remember that, I didn't make that speech, now was that time. Now is that time, because here is this no-name, but also this no-name who's a rival to the throne that's been trying to kill you. If there was ever a time for David to disclaim that, it was now, but he doesn't do that. Mark Boda, another commentator, he says, David had no, had no need politically to follow through on his commitments to Jonathan. And if anything, it was dangerous to reinstate Mephibosheth's economic power and political status, something that would become apparent during Absalom's revolt if you look later on in Samuel, which we might get to. So all that being the case, when he says, hey, when he says to the people that are around his, uh, in his court, he says, Is there, does anyone know of anyone left of Saul's house? Anyone still left at all that I can bless? Everyone's probably going, oh yeah, sure. You mean, you mean get rid of, right? Like that's, that's unheard of. You, ancient Near Eastern kings don't do that, the rival claimants. Um, so it's no wonder that Mephibosheth, when, he, when he's hauled in before David by Ziba, who was the 
estate manager of Saul and says, okay, yeah, there is one guy. I'll, I'll go get him for you. It's no wonder that when Mephibosheth is hauled in, he's full of trembling and fear and he hits the floor face down and calls himself a dead dog. So not only was he a threat to David's throne, he was also lame, so he couldn't help David at all. He, he would end up eating from David's table. David ends up giving Mephibosheth, and we'll get to this in a second, all of the fields that were formerly probably uh, accruing to his own interest, the fields of Saul, the land of Saul that David had probably taken over, he gives back to Mephibosheth, okay? And then he invites Mephibosheth to eat at his own table, which I'm treading on the next point a little bit. But um, he can't, the point is, not only was Mephibosheth a threat to David, but he couldn't help him at all. He couldn't fight for him. He couldn't work for him. He was just a drag on the economy, as it were. His name, Mephibosheth's name, means seething shame. So furious and full of shame. Why? Possibly because he, he literally incarnated that name because he was quite possibly raised by his nurse and others to hear stories about how he was lame because he had fled, because David had taken the throne, this, this, this other guy that his you know, father was enemies with. And so he'd grown up possibly with a huge grudge against David and an incredible fear. His name means seething shame. So when David again hauls him before him, he's terrified. He's just ready for the guillotine to, to drop. <clears throat> Finally, where is he staying? He's staying across east of the Jordan River, sort of out, right outside of the land of Israel, as it were, and with a little bit of territory to guard him, protect him. And he's staying in a place called Lodabar. So his name means seething shame, but the place name where he's staying means no thing, nothing. So this guy, he brings nothing to the table, worse than nothing. He's a liability. Um, he's, his, his grandfather's tried to kill David many times. He's a threat. He's crippled. He's easy prey. He can't fight for David. He can't work for David. His name means seething shame, and he lives in a place called nothing. Can this guy do anything for David? No. David does not bless this man. Next point, David's surprising kindness, point two. David does not bless Mephibosheth because of anything in Mephibosheth, but because of everything in David. Let's look at David's surprising kindness. I've already mentioned it. You've already seen it in the text. So he doesn't just let him live. He doesn't just say reprieve. He treats him like a son. He says, you come and eat at my table every day, just like one of my own. First thing he says to him, what is the first thing David says to Mephibosheth? Well, first thing he says is he calls him by name. He says, do not fear. And then he says, Mephibosheth. First thing, he calls him his name. He turns Mephibosheth, he turns his shame into security. And it's all because of David. And he calls him by name. He names him. And he looks at him and he says, because of my love for another, and we'll get there in a second, I'm loving you. I'm pouring out my love to you. Um, Y'all, you can't love in general. I've read a book called Intellectuals by Paul Johnson, another one of my favorite sort of earlier favorite historians. And he talks about how intellectuals often make the mistake of they say we love humanity, but they're actually really horrible. I'm not, you know, I'm not, there's a sense in which, yeah, okay, I'm part of that crew, intellectual crew. It's, it's easy to talk about loving people and loving humanity, but true love loves individuals, the person right in front of you. That's a lot harder. Love loves people. Love loves persons. And when David says Mephibosheth, he is concentrating his real love on a real person, and he is sacrificing for himself, of himself. Love is personal. 
and that love comes, love comes from God. This kind of love comes from God. Um, we, get the, we have a doctrine that we embrace uh, as, as uh, Christians of the Reformed faith called particular redemption. Sometimes it's called, or particular atonement. Sometimes it's called limited atonement. But that's a, that's a bad way to phrase it. That's unfortunate misnomer. Um, particular atonement is the truth that God, when he died for us in Christ Jesus, he didn't just die hoping that some would come to him. He died to save and to, to secure a people for himself. And he came for you by name. And he secured your salvation. He didn't just hope that someone come and provide a way. Um, John 17, verse six, Jesus in his high priestly prayer, he says, I've manifested your name to the people, he's praying to his father, whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Verse 12, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And that's, of course, Judas. So he's saying, I came after the ones that you told me to come after, and I have kept them, and I will keep them to the end. God loves you. You have a name. He gives you a name. Now, that's a bit of, a, a bit of an aside. We'll, we'll come back to that at the end. Um, David's surprising kindness. Again, I just want to reiterate this. The favor that David shows Mephibosheth has nothing to do with Mephibosheth. Quite the opposite. And everything to do with David. Um, Mephibosheth, why is he highly favored? Why does he receive all this blessing through no good of his own? Because of the love that David has for another, Mephibosheth's father, Jonathan. And David has given his word to Jonathan that he will love his line. And because of that word and because of his love for Jonathan, as he says in verse one and verse three, he's going to love and bless Mephibosheth. Um, so, that's point two. Let's move on to point three, the surprising and the liberating kindness of God. Y'all, this is, I know you know this by now, this is a beautiful picture, obviously, into the love of God and into the gospel. The love of God expressed through the person of Jesus Christ. Y'all, first of all, let's just rattle through all the ways that we, that Mephibosheth shows us what our standing is before God. We can't help God. We offer God no advantage. The very idea is absurd. Romans 5. Six through eight, Romans five, six through eight. For while we were still, what, weak, just like Mephibosheth, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's you, that's me. Verse seven, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died died for us. There's, Jesus tells a story about expressing, anyway, he tells a story about an unjust steward. And he says, basically, like, this is the way that you stand before God, okay? This is how little you bring to the table and quite the opposite, but still how much God forgives and loves you. You are like the unjust steward who was in charge of his master's estate. He, he didn't own anything. He was stewarding it all and will be called to account. And one day, it comes to the master that the steward owes the master 10,000 talents. Now, I say that, and it's like, there's no response from you guys. So, what's a talent? Does that mean he's really gifted? No. 10,000 talents. Let me break that down for you numerically. Um, this servant owes the master 
this much money. A talent was a weight, and it, uh, one talent was 375 tons of gold. Uh, excuse me, excuse me, that's not right. 10,000 talents was 375 tons of gold, okay? Ten, that's, how, that's how much gold it was. So that, that equals, according to a, a calculation that was done a, a few years ago, $4.5 billion. So Jesus is saying, you owe, <laughs> he uses a number that is purposefully, and there were no Bill Gateses back then, okay? So it's purposefully far beyond what any human, any of us could pay. Not only is it that, we have racked up that kind of debt with God, but we have squandered, we have mismanaged God's estate that badly. Can you imagine a, a, a servant that owes that much? How, how has he been able to spend that much on the master's account? You're the worst servant I've ever seen. And this is exactly the point. We are, t- we are weak and sinners before the living God. We can bring him nothing. We can offer him no advantage, quite the opposite. But what does God do? What does the master do? He just, he just says, he clears the debt because the man comes to him and begs for mercy. And he says, your debt is cleared. And there's an, a surprise ending to the story that I won't go into, but check it out. It's a great, it's a great story about forgiveness. He clears the debt. Now, what happens? He has to assume that debt. Now, we won't get into that either. So worse than not being able to help God, we are his enemies. Romans 5, verse 10, it goes on. Paul goes on. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. So God reconciled us, took care of the sin problem and the, all the stuff that stood between us and God um, while we were still enemies of him. You know, living our own lives, even if we're doing our own thing, he made us for himself. And by ignoring him and living on our own, we are totally mismanaging his estate. And the scripture says our position is that we are his enemies. Okay? So, um, what, but what did Jesus do? What's the heart of God for you? What did Jesus say on the cross? As he's being nailed to the cross, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He extends mercy and forgiveness to his enemies. And that is the very heart of God to you and to me. Um, But by rights, God ought ought to have each of us liquidated, killed, okay? Uh, We deserve to die. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. What we've earned is death. We deserve it. But Romans uh, 5.9, verse, the second part, B, much more shall we, Paul says, be saved by him, by Jesus, from what? The wrath of God. So Paul is saying, Jesus has done such a work on the cross through his life and death for you that we in great measure have been through Christ alone saved from God's just wrath, his fury against sin and mounting debt and our enemy stance against him. And the fact that just injustice has been committed in the balance has to be righted. Um, how are we saved from the wrath of God? He is just, he can't just, magically make it disappear because he's just. It has to be paid for, okay? How are we saved from the wrath of God? Easy to say. It was very, very, very hard to do. We're saved from the wrath of God because he wasn't. What this scripture clearly teaches us. We are saved from God's wrath because Jesus Christ suffered all of the just wrath of God against your sin and mine. He became an enemy of his own father. He stood in the gap between you and God. Um, if there were a murderer or a sexual predator, and I use that phrase in particular because it's egregious, but also because it's been in the news a lot lately, right? All this sexual predation. Um, you, you, can't, you can't just let a murderer who's murdered in cold blood 
uh, or a sexual predator off the hook and let him walk out of the courtroom scot-free. Justice, if there's a just judge at the bench, justice has to be served. Payment has to be made. The balance of justice has to be righted. We, we know this. We all just know this intuitively. That would be just wrong, okay? Jesus paid the price that we owe. He righted the balance that we have wronged, okay? He endured the wrath of God for us because the price has to be paid either by you or by Christ, and he paid it for us. So instead of death and hell justly deserved, we are offered, like Mephibosheth, through no good of our own, far from it. On the contrary, we are offered a seat at the king's table. And, and, and if you look at this text a little more closely, and we will now, we will never understand David's surprising, even shocking kindness to Mephibosheth um, unless we understand its source. And, and by now we do, but it's even in the text. So look at verse one with me. It's in the text here. Um, David is looking for someone what, of Saul's line, what? To show him kindness for Jonathan's sake, for the sake of another that he dearly loves, just as God dearly loves his son. We'll get there and we'll finish with that. And so, and so we experience the love of God through, through the work and the person of another that God loves, his own son. But David says, I wanna show someone kindness for Jonathan's sake. Is there anyone I can do that to? Look at verse three though. He says almost the same thing. He says, is there anyone I can show kindness, the kindness of God to? It's a little bit different phrase. So first time, the kindness for Jonathan's sake, and then secondly, it's the kindness of God. The narrator, the author, wants us to know something very clearly. This kindness of David is God's kindness. Um, Jesus is the perfect expression of the kindness of God, of his character, of his heart. Do you wanna know what makes God tick? You wanna know exactly what God is like? A lot of times you see there's a, people say, ah, there's an Old Testament God and he's angry and surly and wants to judge and he's full of wrath against sin. And then there's Jesus in the New Testament and he's nice and he died for me and he spoke really nice things. And what the scriptures tell us is that Jesus comes along and says, I'm the fulfillment of all that. I am the son of God and I am God in the flesh. And I am what God is really like. Look at me. Look at what I'm saying and look at what I'm doing. I'm gonna go to the cross because this is an expression of God's heart. It's an expression of the kindness of God. Jesus is who God is at his core. My best friend in Scotland, I, I've said this before. If you've been here for any amount of time, you've heard it, not, not least of which because I always say it in a Scottish bro, my best, my best attempt at a Scottish burr. Um, but he would often say, Murdo MacLeod, he would often say, Taylor, don't compare other people's outsides with your insides. And that's a great just life tip. We always go around comparing like, I'm a wreck inside, I'm, but other people look great. They must have it all together. Have you ever said that to yourself? And what Murdo said is, don't do that. Everyone has an inside and you can only see your own, okay? Look, the scriptures tell us Jesus is the insides of God. You wanna know what God's really like? You wanna know what is really going on in his heart? You wanna know how much he's willing to give up to get you, how much it doesn't have to do with you and how much he's already taking care of it in the person of Christ? Look at Jesus. That is what God is really like. That is the insides of God. John, in his gospel, starts out with this beautiful 18 verses, a prologue. And um, he finishes the prologue by saying, look, no one has ever seen God, the invisible God. He's, he dwells in unapproachable light. You can't even get close to him. It's too holy, burn you up, just like the sun if you get too close. But, but here's the thing, it's an amazing statement. He said, but the one who is 
in, at his side or on his chest or in his bosom, as close as you can get, who actually, he's already told us, is God himself. He's with God and he is God. He's the word of God. He uh, exegetes is the word he uses in the Greek. He has exegeted the unapproachable, the unseen God. What does the word exegete mean? Exegete is what, is what uh, reader, careful readers, scholars, theologians do. They're encouraged to do when they have a text. They're encouraged to take the text and, to, and not to put in, not to do eisegesis, to put in their own thoughts, but rather to unpack what is in the text. That's what exegesis is. Whatever is there, unfold it like a flag and unfurl it so it's clearly seen. That's one of the reasons we use illustration and application so you can see, not to add to the text, so you can see what the text really says. That's what a good reader and teacher does. Jesus, John tells us, exegetes God. He is the unfurling of the one true God Almighty. And he says, this is exactly what God is like. This, nail, nail, nail. The surprising kindness of David, it comes from one place, God. The kindness of God displayed on a cross for us to see, hey, through no good of our own, just like Mephibosheth. That's the beautiful part about this story. What a perfect picture of how we can't bring anything. Christ has brought it all. There's nothing more for you to do receive and worship. Um, God's love for another, his son, uh, is how we are loved by God. David's love for Jonathan is how Mephibosheth was loved by God. And our relation to that is by faith, simply casting our eyes on Jesus and saying, yes, I believe that you are the one way to God. You love me that much. You died for me, you live for me. I say, yes, that's faith. That's receiving um, and the word that we're given and the word that's all through this text is the word covenant. It's got, Jesus is God's covenant word to us. His, his undying and really dying word accomplished through the cross that he will never leave or forsake you if you're in Christ. And he will give his love fully to you in Jesus. Um, that word covenant is at the heart, the literary heart of this passage. There's a ring structure. If this passage is a, is a target, the bullseye is verse seven. And that's where David mentions his covenant with Jonathan. Um, and because of his covenant, he's pouring out his love to Mephibosheth. And this is a perfect expression of what God does with us. Let me, let me just give a short story before sort of finishing with, um, with this idea of God's love expressed to us in the covenant of Christ. Um, B.B., so what is covenant? B.B. Warfield was a great 19th century um, theologian at Princeton. He sort of like was Princeton. Um, kind of was old, old Princeton theological seminary in the end of the 19th, early part of the 20th century. And when he died, one person said, as his, as his funeral beer was carried, as his casket was carried out of Princeton Seminary, um, they say he kind of took Princeton, old Princeton with him. And it, and it sort of changed after that. And then from that, Westminster, a more conservative uh, seminary was formed out of that. But he was a great theologian, uh, a lion of a man and, and, a, and a lover of God. And he studied before he came to Princeton in Leipzig, Germany. Old Testament, New Testament work, there's a lot of German. So he went over there and studied from 1876 to 1877. Now this time, this year or two, doubled as his honeymoon uh, with his new wife, Anna. Annie. excuse me. They were taking a walking tour in the Hartz Mountains in Germany when a thunderstorm, again, a year into marriage or less, a thunderstorm caught them in the mountains of Germany. 
And it, it was intense. And it so terrified his wife that she basically became an invalid for life. Okay, this is first year of your marriage. During his professorship at Princeton, he would at least every two hours go check on her, make sure she was okay. Um, he would doted on her and cared for her for 39 years of their marriage. One of his students watched Warf, Dr. Professor Warfield walking with Annie, his wife, and he said that, quote, the gentleness of his manner was striking proof of the loving care with which he surrounded her. This is covenant. This is what we say at the altar. For better or for worse, I love you. Not because of your behavior, not because of what you do for me. It's nice when you do nice things for me. I like that. But my love does not depend on that. My love is because of my word to you that I am with you no matter what. Where does that come from? God and his covenant kindness to us in Jesus. Jesus is God's word. He is the best and perfect expression of God's unwavering commitment to you. It, hey, God's love, friends, relax. Here's the word, doesn't depend on you. It has nothing to do with you and everything to do with him. And because of that, he will make you unlovely persons that we are. He will make you lovely. Yes, he will. And he will finish the work. Yes, he will. Amen. Hebrews 7, as we wind down, verse 22. This makes, okay, if you want to read, if you're like, after this sermon, if you're like, I covenant, I got to hear more about covenant. I know you're all going to race. You're going to skip lunch and, and just go hole up during the rain and just in, a, in your favorite reading chair and just go read about covenant. Okay, if you want to do that, the best place to do it in the Bible is Hebrew, the book of Hebrews toward the end of the New Testament. Hebrews 7 goes on for chapters. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Now, who's the guarantee of God's covenant love for us? A person, Jesus. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests in the Old Testament, to offer sacrifices daily, morning, evening, first for his own sins, like those other high priests had to offer sacrifices for themselves first because they were sinners and then for the rest of the people, not Jesus, okay? All of his sacrifice was not for him, but for you. He offered it once and for all, not for his own sins and then for those of the people since he did this once for all by offering up what? What was his sacrifice? Himself. He was the priest who offered the sacrifice of himself for you once and for all. It's finished. And then Hebrews 10, verse 14, for by a single offering, he is what? Perfected. You wanna know your status if you're in Christ by faith? He has perfected you for all time, those who are what? Being sanctified or perfected. Your status in Christ is that you've already, your perfection and, and sanctification has been secured. It is stored for you in Christ. As holy as he is, you are that pure and spotless before God. And at the same time, because of that, you can have confidence that you are on the journey through his perfection of being perfected, okay? Isn't that a wonderful, it has everything to do with Christ and it doesn't have anything to do with your own good works and yet it radically affects our lives. So it is with us. So it is with us. In the Old Testament, the, the quality, and I wind down, guys, and then I'm gonna share, of course, from C.S. Lewis uh, and give some application and we're done, okay? The quality of the sacrifice did not depend on someone's faith. The animal brought, it didn't depend, if you were trembling and just had a little faith, it didn't matter as long as what? What did, the, what, did, what did it depend on? The quality of the sacrifice. Was it blemishless? Was it perfect and pure? 
Okay, sometimes we can even make a sort of, we can put the quality of our faith on us in such, that, in such a way that we are sort of, it's a salvation by works. Is my faith pure enough? Do I have enough faith? No, it, it's the quality of the thing that we put our faith in, Jesus, the perfect sacrifice offered once for all for you. So C.S. Lewis says this in a book that I'm reading with friends, like I said last week. It's called Mere Christianity, and he says this. He says, that is why the Christian is in a different position from other people who are trying to be good. They hope by being good to please God if there is one, or if they, they think there is not, at least they hope to deserve approval from good men. But the Christian thinks any good he does comes from the Christ life inside him. He does not think God will love us because we are good, but that God will make us good because he loves us. God does not love you because of you. He loves you because of him, and in so doing, makes you lovely. His love is truly without condition. The condition is Christ. The condition has been met. Rest in that. Come to that if you never have. Okay, let's apply. Let's spend just a few minutes applying, and then we'll take communion together. How, does, how should this affect us? So what? First of all, this should liberate us. If we apprehend this in any degree whatsoever and receive his love and the person and work of Jesus Christ, it should set us free. We don't deserve God's love. We didn't do anything to earn it, and therefore, and it was fully and freely given in Christ. No strings attached. Just come to him as you are and know that he's the one way to the Father, fully provided. If we have done nothing to earn it, we can do nothing to lose it. You understand that? If you have earned it in some small way, you can lose it in some small way. And if you can lose it in some small way, I assure you I will. And I assure you, you will. But that's gone in Christ. He will hold you until the end. He will lose none that have been given to him. Um, okay, so that's the first thing. And I know that it sounds a little, it sounds a little uh, scary to say that, almost like I'm, but that's the gospel. And if we're not a little bit scandalized by the freeness and the liberality and the no strings attachedness of the love of God in Christ, we probably haven't been hearing the gospel. Um, that's why when Paul preaches the gospel in Romans, what's the chapter right after that? Romans 6. Hey, should we just be able to live? If this is true, we could just live however we want to so that we could just sin and sin and sin so that grace abounds. He says, may it never be, certainly not. That's how we know Paul's been preaching the gospel. Um, a teacher I listened to this week, Dwight Edwards, direct grandson of Jonathan Edwards, the great theologian, he said, uh, he said it's like the Grand Canyon when you take your kids. Uh, and he said, I took my kids when they were little. He said, the thing about the Grand Canyon, it is grand beyond imagining, but there's no railing on most parts. It's just a sheer drop off. So man, when you have little kids, it's terrifying. He said, but the thing about it is that when you go and get out, you wanna keep your kids like all here next to your knees, like close to the van, <laughs> and then you're, you're dozens of feet away from the edge. It's just not the same. Because there's so much in the foreground that's just rock. You have to get up right to the edge to see the grandeur. And that's the thing about the gospel. If we're not, we have to get up right up to the edge and say with boldness something that this text clearly shows us and that Paul proclaims with everything he is and that Christ shows us in his posture on the cross, which is that God's salvation depends not one single iota on you. Can, there's nothing you can do to earn it. There's nothing you can do to keep it. It is simply received by faith. It's accomplished all, all because of God and not because of you. And that should liberate us, friends. And secondly, as it liberates us, we're called just to be conduits of the love of God and to pass that on without condition. 
we put conditions on our love. But Jesus says, even the Gentiles love people that love them. Even the, when he says Gentiles, even people that don't, aren't in my family, that don't know me, they don't know my love. But you who are in my family, who have received my love and have understood it at all, we love not people that love us back or because they've loved us. We love indiscriminately and scandalously. Even where people go, our love should cause people that are around us to scratch their heads and just go, what is going on? Where's that coming from? Gives us a chance to say, let me tell you where. Let me preach the gospel to you, friend. Um, so we pass it on. So to whom? Who are the Mephibosheths in my life that I can bless? Okay. Um, first, your spouse. Um, not because your, your spouse is all the things that Mephibosheth was, right? But again, because it, we're not looking at who deserves my love. Do you deserve my love today? Do you fill my cup today? Are you doing for me what I, you know, what, all the things that I need? But because of my covenant word to you, because God has called me to love him first and you next, priority. And then our children, if we have children, or if we have a spouse, if we have children. Then next, the church, for those of us that don't have a spouse and don't have children, okay? The church, Jesus in John 13, one of his last words to his disciples is this. Do you want the world to know that I am, that I am the one way to God the Father, that I am the Messiah, that I am the Son of God and God incarnate? Here's how the world will know, by the way that you love one another. Love each other as I have loved you. Lay your life down for one another. That our next priority is to love each other with that kind of Mephibosheth love, okay? Even to look within our own ranks for enemies, as it were, who is, man, who is a, a threatening me in a perceived way or truly let me go heat-seek love for them? Let me go just, as, just in the same way that Jesus, God has loved me through no good of my own. Let me do that. If we love each other in such a way, the world is gonna believe Jesus says that he is the one way to the Father. Because we don't, the, the world doesn't love like that. And then, our, and then those who are around us, our coworkers, our neighbors, Eugene Peterson says, when David asks if there's anyone left of Saul's family whom he can love in Jonathan's name, he's asking in effect, is there anyone left in the enemy camp that I can love? We should love, we should look next and perhaps lastly to love our enemies, to love our enemies because that's exactly, if Jesus hadn't done that, none of us would be sitting here. So it humbles us because we didn't deserve it, but it stabilizes and it exalts us and it gives us an identity that just as David said, Mephibosheth, to Mephibosheth and gave him a name, and loved him as a person, so God has given you a name, an identity that is Jesus over you. And that is making you lovely, okay? He will accomplish that for which he set out. He will finish his work in you. Finally, as a church, um, let's look as a church, and as we do, this is why we have partnerships, to give to the Mephibosheths, to those that can't give back, to those that are lame, perhaps even a threat to us, but who are lame and who are poor and who are disadvantaged, Prisoners, so this is why we do partnerships. This is why we wanna give money and time to prisoners, foster children and orphans. We wanna be a culture of life in this church. There's no better way probably to show the, the uh, prodigal love of God, the undeserved love of God to the least of these than to be a culture where increasingly we are bringing foster and, and orphan children into our home. I wanna be a people that does that. The infirm and elderly, the poor, immigrants and refugees who are often poor and on the, on the edges, and many of whom never come into an American's home. Um, and then victims of violence. And I'll close with this. Um, I was at, uh, and we kind of rerouted men's pint night, which is every fourth Thursday normally, to um, a speaker called Gary Hagen, who's, he's the uh, president and founder of the International Justice Mission. 
and they go around the world and work with local authorities to, to help free uh, forced uh, labor, forced sexual um, uh, people that are in forced labor situations. And um, they're now the largest or- sexual organization in the world. He's a, he's a Harvard, Harvard grad, Chicago, clerk for a Supreme Court justice, smartest of smart, super privileged. He's using all of his privilege to bless the least of these. And uh, an amazing guy. And he says at the end of his talk, after giving all the stats and, and, uh, and blowing the trumpet of calling us to, he says, hey, if this freaks you out and this worries you and this is a weight on your back, like, okay, I gotta, you walk out of the parking lot all heavy, like, I gotta do this now. He says, don't bother. Don't bother. Because it's a privilege. It's just an absolute joy and privilege to walk into this adventure that God has for us. Because, because you can't, Earn and you can't keep the love of God. It doesn't have anything to do with you. It has everything to do with Jesus. We get to walk into that free. Free vessels of light and gratitude and liberal love. Um, that Arctic expedition got it way wrong. Um, the long knew it was all up to them that they would have to save themselves, not us. Not us. One has come and done all the work necessary for our salvation. Um, and so we just get to praise him. We just get to praise him and live in light of that. Let's, let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this scandalous word of, of, of love that you've given to us, whose name is Jesus. Um, it's so cuts against the grain of our sin nature, our flesh, everything we're taught in the world that we can do nothing to earn something that's the best thing in the world. But so it is in Christ. Would you give us a heart and a mind and a body to believe in the word of Jesus, that that is exactly what you're like and exactly the way to you and exactly the way to please you is to receive him by faith and to live in that life that he has provided through his death and resurrection. We love you. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.